Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app. Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From iHeartRadio, this is Missing on 9-11, the story of one woman who vanished on the eve of history and my quest to find her. I'm your host, John Walzak. You know, before I get into this particular case, um, can, tell me about your 9-11 experience. What what happened? Where were you? Um, I was working in the 20 squad, Texas squad, 20 precinct, Upper West Side. I was on my way, I was on a job going to interview somebody. Um, I was going over the 59th Street Bridge, and I saw the smoke coming from the, the you know, downtown. And then I, when you, as you're going over the bridge, you can see more and more, and I can see the Twin Towers, I see smoke coming out. And the first thing in my mind was uh, like a Cessna, 
or something like that. But it was a perfectly clear day. So I'm like, how did Cessna hit the Twin Towers? This is retired NYPD detective Richard Stark. And then as I'm looking at it, the second plane hit. And I saw the, I didn't see the plane hit, but I saw the blowout of the other side of the building. And I was like, this is, nah, this is a terrorist. And I was with a rookie detective. And the, the, the bombing of the coal just happened. So um, I said to him, I go, it's freaking Bin Laden. I go, he's, the, he, he's behind this. And I said, and like, everybody's, yeah, sure, Rich. But no, that's the extra guy I was with. That's exactly what I said. About 9.30, I arrived at Canal Street and Broadway. And uh, at that, at that, when being there, waiting to be assigned uh, a post, because they, they didn't know what there was going on. It was like chaotic at that time. So at the time, we're wait, us waiting for assignment. The buildings, came, one of the buildings came down, and then we just see people running up Broadway, like thousands of people, and they're all covered with dust. And I was grabbing them. I had a car, so I was grabbing them, like one or two at a time, and taking them to St. Vincent's emergency room, which is the closest hospital. And I went back and forth. I don't know how many times six, maybe five or six times. And then just rendering first aid to people that really didn't have to go to the hospital, just had, you know, squirting water in their face, getting the dust out. Um, and then later on that, in, the, in the day, we were assigned post in the perimeter of 9-11 in uniform. And then I finished that about one in the morning on, on September 12th. I went home, which I live, you know, close by from ground zero. Um, I got about three hours sleep, uh, just into street clothes, Took a shower, you know, construction booth and stuff. I went down to the Detective Endowment Association, which is the, you know, you're familiar with that? Mm -hmm. So we reported there, and it was all volunteer work. At this point, anybody was there was volunteer, it was an assignment. So they issued us helmets, masks. Did they have masks? I think we had the painter's mask, the paper mask, uh, gloves, and then we all went down to the uh, ground zero. Had to be about 6 30 in the morning, and we, we, you know, coordinated with other, you know, steel workers and firemen and other cops that were there, police officers. And we were on top, literally on top of the pile that fell. And you had to kind of circle your way out there. And then we had like a, a we had a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, like a, a, a line of people um, just handing like pieces of, you know, we're trying to- Like a bucket brigade? Yeah, okay, a bucket brigade, but you could see somebody under the rubble or alive or not. And then we were just like handling beams and pieces of steel and it was going from one guy to the other. We were just getting it out of the way to clear that area. And then if you came up with a body, then we would have a gurney and put the body on top of the, and then we would pass the body, because you know, there was guys on each side. Then the body would be passed out, all body parts. Um, so I was there for about, um, from 6.30 to about five in the afternoon. Um, at this point, I was AWOL from work because I was forgot. I was so busy doing that. I was supposed to be at work at four o'clock in the other precinct. <laughs> so I, you know, got in touch with them and told them what I was doing, and and then I had to go from there and go home, change, and then go go to work. Two days after 9/11, I was transferred from the 2-0 precinct to the first precinct, Lower Manhattan. Uh, they needed help down there because they were short-handed because they were a little busy. Um, and I handled cases in the first precinct and. What we're here for now is one of the cases was the missing person, a Sneha Phillip. Stark has never spoken publicly about this case until now. We interviewed him in person during COVID, which is why, at points, he sounds muffled through his mask. Part of your investigative effort, uh, you checked hospitals, morgues, homeless shelters, um, INS, credit card records. Is that all correct? Yes, yes. Um, I assume that's relatively standard. For yes, these cases for a missing or, person, yes. Um, 
Did you recognize this as a high profile case early on or did, did you give it any extra effort mm -hmm. or attention? No, I get the same attention I give any case. Um, but uh, but I realized it was like a high profile until I started seeing, um, you know, Marlon was putting flies all over the place. Now I, I live in Manhattan, I found Grand Central. I was seeing them like in my neighborhood. I was like, you know, seeing pictures of her. He made up his own flies. On September 14th, 2001, at 11 p.m., Ron filed a written complaint with the NYPD, triggering an official investigation into Sneha's disappearance. Initially, it went to the missing persons squad. Then it was flagged as a Category G case and went to Detective Stark. Can you tell me a little bit more about Category G? What does that include? Category G is just, uh, they just call it Category G, but it's, the missing person doesn't fall under the missing person protocol. If you don't come home tonight and your girlfriend or your wife Call the police, say he's missing. They go, where? Oh, he's not really missing because he could be out. He could have went on just, maybe you guys are not getting along. He went on a week long trip, but he has to fall under a category over a certain age, which is 72, under a certain age, which is 16, under 16. And he has to have some kind of mental, something going on uh, physically or mentally that makes you, that you can't take care of yourself. Then you become a missing person. But if you're healthy and you know, you're of age, especially an active doctor, and you just, you know, disappeared. Um, it's not considered a missing person um, over a, a period of time. Category G is a technical designation. It means that a person is, quote, absent under circumstances indicating unaccountable or involuntary disappearance. It requires an immediate investigation. There's two things you want to please upon. The category G missing and a cuppy. You know what a cuppy is? Mm. That's an unsolved homicide where they can't determine if it was a homicide or not, but they can't say it's not a homicide. So it gets the worst. I mean, it's just pretty much unsolvable most of the time. You know? well, not, well, category G, it's, sometimes it comes out, most of the time it comes out in the bed because the person turns up to see someone. And so it, get, it gets kicked back to you guys. You get the case. Um, after scanning the initial information, what were your first thoughts? Did it just stick out as this is a bizarre case or was it more of a everything is chaos right now, and this is just... Everything is chaos, and there's, uh, and, and there's a, a lot of thousands of people doing missing person reports, because they can't, just like Ron, um, you know, he couldn't grasp that she was in the building and she's dead. He couldn't grasp, he, he believed she was alive and something else happened. He just, you know, the denial, pretty much. So, tell me just about your investigative steps that you would do in general, but specifically with this case, um, the steps that you took and kind of walk me through that process. Well, call Ron up. Ron came into the precinct and we sat down for you know, an hour or so and talked um, just to learn more about him and about Sneha. And he, he, you know, he told me, you know, like I said, I don't want to say too much stuff that he, she was having issues. Substance abuse, mental illness, marital trouble, legal trouble. She was in court that Monday. I know you know about that, right? Mm -hmm. um, on the on uh, the tenth, so um, we were just talking about that, and he believed that she was kidnapped or something else happened. And I'm like, okay, I was like, we'll look into it, of course. But I mean, just logically, you know, you live next to the trade center, and you're telling me that, you know, she said to her mother the night before she was going shopping in the in the in the mall, um, the concourse mall, and in the trade center. This is extremely important. Because although Sneha lived near the World Trade Center, according to Ron, quote, we never go there. She had no business there. So in order to believe that Sneha died at the Trade Center, her family had to understand why she was there in the first place. 
they put forth at least four conflicting explanations. One, Sneha was shopping at the mall underneath the World Trade Center. Two, Sneha was visiting Windows on the World, the famous restaurant on top of the North Tower, in advance of a friend's upcoming wedding reception there. Three, the night before, Sneha attended a party at a hotel next to the Trade Center, hosted by the city's, quote, South Asian community, and presumably stayed the night, even though she lived only 900 feet away. And, four, Sneha was walking home on 9-11 from somewhere else, passing by the towers just as the attacks began. Obviously, Sneha could not have been shopping at the mall, visiting Windows on the World, leaving a hotel next to the towers, and walking home from somewhere else, all at the same time. But once her family settled on the hero narrative, that she ran into the towers to help victims and died, they needed a why to understand why she was there. In the early days, before the hero narrative, Sneha's family genuinely thought she was alive. And none of them, especially Ron, wanted Detective Stark to prematurely declare Sneha a 9-11 victim. Detective Stark understood that impulse, the desire to investigate everything. But to him, 9-11 always made the most sense. So I'm just, you know, being a detective kind of like leans that way. So I'm just leaning, he goes, he, he understood that a little bit, but he had a doubt in his mind. That's what he kept saying. I have a doubt in my mind that I don't think she's part of, I don't think she died, I think something else happened. So that's why we went through the whole um, then I just got information from, you know, anybody she had contact with, uh, where she works. Um, I responded to the apartment, looked at video footage. I identified her, I not, not face identify. I don't know if, um, did Ron tell you about this? Or no? So, so yeah, so they're at 8.43 a.m. on 9-11. There's an image of someone <coughs> that's a blurry image exiting her apartment building. Well, it's uh, not blurry, it's just that you yeah, the, the side and back of her. But Ron did state that. He recognized her dress. Like, well, that could be one of her dresses. Like, he was never sure about anything. In the court records, he said that he did not think that that was her. Yeah, no, yeah. Well, he was leaning towards not thinking, but, like, again, he was he was really, really in denial of this. So you got to take that into consideration. Fair enough. But I don't buy it. Ron was in a much better position to determine whether or not 30 seconds of low-quality footage actually showed his wife. Were you able visually to make an identification of that woman as her? How much, how, how certain were you? How much doubt did you have? I was 90% sure. No, not, not a facial, no, no, not a positive ID. What made you 90% sure? Just her mannerisms, uh, seeing her, watching her video for like hours and hours in Century 21, the way she walks, the way her mannerisms, and she had the exact same mannerisms of Sneha the night before, you know, in Century 21. This doesn't make any sense. The Century 21 footage includes only a few frames of Sneha, making it next to impossible to compare it to 30 seconds of a different, low-quality video and declare with 90% certainty that the woman who exited 225 Rector Place at 8.43 a.m. on 9-11 was actually Sneha. If it was Sneha, the woman on video at 8.43, why wouldn't she have her shopping bags? Because she had stayed somewhere else the night of the 10th. And no, she bought- was coming out of an apartment. She was going shopping. So, so you, so you think that that person in the video was already in the building? It wasn't because I've, I've read that speculation that it was someone that walked in and then turned around and walked out. So you did that video show somebody 
entering the building and exiting or just exiting the building? I just have an exiting. exiting. Stand in the lobby for a few, maybe 30 seconds and then exiting. Gotcha. Um, would that, that would indicate that she was in the building, though. And Ron said later on that, um, and the family said that they were not able to find any sign that she had been in the apartment. That's a big question mark. That was always a big question mark. It's also a big deal. Detective Stark just said that he thinks Sneha was inside her apartment on the morning of 9-11, then exited the building at 8.43, only three minutes before American Airlines Flight 11 hit the North Tower, 900 feet away. If true, if, that means that either Sneha did come home late 9-10 or early 9-11, and Ron lied when he said she did not come home, or she snuck into her apartment after Ron left for work and left no trace. Or Detective Stark is wrong. The woman at 843 is not Sneha. Sneha was not in the apartment. One thing that would help answer this question is being able to see the digital photos Ron took when he returned to the apartment on September 12, 2001. Because according to Ron, Sneha left behind her passport, ID, wallet, glasses, and other critical belongings. What do the photos show? Do they show the passport, ID, wallet, and glasses? Do they show any sign Sneha was in the apartment after 9-10? I don't know. There's also a crucial witness who could help clear this up. His name is Jimmy Nelson. He's the doorman who worked the night shift at Ron and Sneha's building from 11 p.m. on 9-10 until 7 a.m. on 9-11. If anyone saw Sneha return or Ron leave, it would have been Jimmy. Unfortunately, he did not respond to interview requests. Finally, the apartment's security footage is also vital. 225 Rector has at least three entrances, front, back, and side. I'm not sure if they were all covered by cameras in 2001. The front definitely was. The rest, I don't know. Do the tapes show Sneha returning home on 9-10 or early 9-11? Do they verify Ron's story? I don't know. I don't have access to the footage. I contacted the company that owns 225 Rector, the related companies, to see if they saved 9-10 and or 9-11 security footage. They never responded. The NYPD probably has the tapes, but it denied me access to most case files. Finally, there was at least one big flaw with the NYPD's investigation. According to court records, Detective Stark did not watch all of the security footage. He testified that he did see Sneha leave the building around 5.15 p.m. on 9.10, and the mystery woman, who he thinks is Sneha, exit at 8.43 a.m. on 9.11. But he did not watch all of the footage between 5.15 p.m. on 9.10 and 8.43 a.m. on 9.11. 15 and a half hours of footage. I don't think anyone has, ever. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If 
you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's return for a minute to the mystery call placed at 4.05 a.m. on 9-11 
from Ron and Sneha's apartment landline to Ron's cell phone. Ron said he was alone in the apartment at the time and that, half asleep, he probably used the landline to dial his cell to see if Sneha left him a voicemail. But he has no memory of making the call. So, more or less, he thinks he sleep-dialed his cell from his landline. To me, it's just odd. I get that 9-11 was traumatic, but this is such a critical detail. Did he, did he give you an explanation about what that... Why he had would, no explanation. He couldn't, yeah. Do you have yeah. any idea? Did you find any reasonable explanation of... Because he said he didn't remember Well, that compelled it. with my, a good feeling that I saw her leave the next morning, and she was going said to her mother a few hours the night before, she was going shopping in the Ground Zero, you know, at the World Trade Center, that it just all went together. Just do you you think, know, strange coincidences. You know. Do you think she was in the apartment then? Yes. See, it, then do you, his, Ron's story was that he left, he was, he got home around 11, 15, 9, 10, and that he left, I think, 6.30 in the morning on 9-11, um, and that he never she saw She wasn't her. there. Yeah, so do you think she oh. entered, there's, there's, there's some discrepancy, she either entered after he left or she was there and, and he's not telling the truth. Do you have any indication of? It could be, yeah, I mean, I, he, he changed his story about three or four times with me through the whole investigation. So it's possibly he's lying or... When you say change the yeah. story three or four times, any specific details or what, what do you mean by that? Um, just saying that she was part, she was, wasn't part of 9-11, that she was kidnapped and then later on, well, it was real later on when he said she was part of 9-11. But um, story of what, what she did, like she was a doctor in, in Cabrini and you know, the situation happened there. The situation he's referring to is the incident in which Sneha claimed a fellow doctor sexually assaulted her in a bar, then allegedly recanted and harassed the doctor and his wife. Um, and the story with the brother and the brother's girlfriend, and, you know, it, it, it just, he, he, he said it didn't happen, and the brother-in-law said it, you know, his brother-in-law said it did, and, you know, it's just that he was inconsistent with some things. The, quote, story with the brother and the brother's girlfriend. Okay, well, Detective Stark did not want to go into detail with me out of respect for Sneha's family. But years ago, in court, Stark said that Sneha's younger brother, John, told him that shortly before 9-11, John walked in on Sneha and his girlfriend having sex. John later denied telling this to Stark. In fact, he denied speaking to Stark at all. So... Figuring out her, Sneha's final movements and communications on 9-10, um, how did you go about doing that? Uh, just interviewing people, uh, can you talk about, um, did you vi actually visit Century 21 and view the footage or was it sent to you? No, I, was, I went to Century 21. Um, I can't remember how we, I think it was, the, I think it was credit card uh, usage. That's how we figured out she was there once we did. Um, no, I responded that I was there for like four or five hours looking at the video. Because I wish I had the video I have now in this building, but it's old time, you know. It wasn't um, motion sensitive, you know, you had to look at the whole thing. So Ron, Ron said that he spent several weeks going and looking at that video too, and then he found her. Um, did you view it after he did, or bef did you, who found her first on the video? I viewed it first. Um, and I assume he probably was looking for other signs of her and, and Well, probably if she was, was with somebody else, you know, who, anybody, could be anybody, but she wasn't. 
you know, she was by herself the whole time on what I viewed. So that, that's, that's a very interesting point because the last person to see her live was a shoe salesperson, uh, Sonia Mora. Um, the next door. I never looked at that footage. I just sent you 21. And what, well, and so the last person to see her live said that, well, frankly, there are discrepancies with this. Um, I've seen and read in, in different records that, um, that Sneha was with someone, that she wasn't with someone, that the sales clerk thought she might be with someone, you know, versus a story that the sales clerk was definitively sure and that had she had talked to them and they said they were going, you know, somewhere else afterwards. It seems kind of murky. Do you have, did you ever determine whether or not um, with any certainty Sneha was with anyone that No, night? no, no, she wasn't. You know, like I said, I only viewed the Century 21 video. I don't know why the others, the shoe store, I don't, I can't remember why. I don't know if it wasn't available or... Uh, it was it was part of Century Twenty One. So it was, it was yeah, it was just a different was. different so, part of yeah. So yeah, yeah. But you but, you didn't uh, viewing the video. You didn't see any photographic evidence, videographic evidence that Sneha was with anybody no, else. No, because that would have been key. That would have been a key part of it to find out who that person was. Um, do you have any reason to doubt the story of the person, the last person to see her, who insinuated or said that she was with somebody else? Maybe she just met somebody, was talking to somebody. You know, at that time, I didn't see anybody with her, um, like you know, next to her or talking to her. Um, but no, I, I, I don't know. Maybe he just misunderstood. Maybe he thought the person was with her. Yeah. Uh, so um, was it a male or she, female? This guy claimed she, she said it was a female. Yeah. So you obtained um, call records. Uh, did you? Explain, tell me, tell me about that. Did you get these records? Did you start calling people? Did you contact Verizon? How, how do you investigate that at the time? Yeah, I have to get a subpoena and, um, you know, submit it to Verizon. I believe it was Verizon at the time. And then you just get the records of the, you know, for any phone calls. Like I said, it's 20 years ago, but I think Ron even supplied some phone records. Yeah. Um, and so, you got, I assume, the phone records for the apartment landline. Did you also get uh, any cell phone records from either Sneha or Ron? Yes. I don't think, I, I know her phone, if I remember, her phone was nothing, I had no activity on her phone at all after 9-11. This is another discrepancy. Detective Stark says that Sneha did have a cell phone. Ron said she did not. To be fair, we're talking 20 years ago, Memories fade, and these are very specific questions. Do you know, this is a question I wasn't able to tell from the records. Um, via the records, it seemed that she did not have a cell phone, but that he did have a cell phone. Does that seem accurate? I don't remember. Okay. Yeah. I don't remember. Um, I myself just had a phone for two years at that point. Something yeah. that I noticed um, in the records is that there's no mention of a pager, and since she was a doctor, she almost certainly would have had a pager. Um, do you have any recollection of either finding or obtaining a pager that she left behind or of obtaining records related to her pager? No, no. I just I thought that was kind of odd because I, I've talked to people that worked with her and obviously she was a doctor. Um, she certainly well, would have had a pager. Well, I think at the time she was working in St. Vincent's in Staten Island and she was on like modified duty. I don't know what she did when she went to work, but she wasn't doing any, like, you know, she was modified. I don't know what that means in the medical field. As part of his investigation, Detective Stark visited St. Vincent's, 
the hospital where Sneha worked for only 10 weeks before she disappeared. According to Stark, Sneha was having trouble at her new job and was on, quote, modified duty. Plus, she was off work on 9-10 and 9-11. So I don't know if she had a pager, either personal or professional, with her on 9-10, the day she vanished. And I've seen no indication that the NYPD examined any pager records. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous (laughs) of your generation that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC 
was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So you you get this case, obviously, this put it into the context, again, of the chaos of 9-11 and the fact that there are 6,000 people who are alleged missing and the daily news is 10,000 feared dead. And so I think it's important to put it in context that it was chaotic and at the time beyond the 3,000 people that died, um, you know, there were thousands of other people, duplicates of different people listing their loved ones as missing. Um when you got this, did you immediately think 9-11, World Trade Center, that's the answer, or... Well, it's not the answer, but it's what I start, thought of first, but it wasn't the answer, you know. What do you mean by that? No, I mean, there's always a possibility of what Ron's saying, so that's why we got the case and we looked into it. We didn't just dismiss it as, ah, it's just part of 9-11. There was a lot of, like I said, I told you on the phone yesterday, you know, like an average homicide has one box of files. This case had two boxes of files. So there was a lot more work done, you know, um, on this case than like a, a homicide. Because it became a high, prof- high profile. Then we got, you know, we, not not we were done more work, but it just the the family was pricing, you know, was getting involved. They hired a private investigator, um, so it became more integral, you know, more involved. What would what would be in those two boxes? What kind of when you say two boxes of records or files? Um, mostly, like, I t- the forms of DD-5, it's just a f- anytime you talk to somebody, like right now I'm talking to you, if I was a detective interviewing you, I'd, after I interview you, I'd be writing everything down, I would go to the and typewriter at the time, and have the computer, and, and type out a DD-5 about a whole conversation we just had. So a lot of those, and then phone records, any photos? Phone records, anything dealing with the case, video footage. I tried to get the records. The NYPD would not confirm whether or not they even exist. So in terms of alternate explanations, um, how seriously did you consider suicide, foul play, either you know kidnapping or murder, um, or the fact that she possibly just ran off? Um, I, leaned, I leaned more towards possible because of the situation that she was in. I know that she just had a fight with Ron that night, that night before. Stark misspoke. He meant the morning before, the morning of 9-10. Possible suicide and possibly just ran off. That was two possibilities. You don't believe foul play is even possible, though? No, I don't see no reason in it. I don't see, no. I mean, talking a lot, like, uh, well, in the beginning, maybe we just looked at Ron, because they, you know, they had a fight, and yeah, we, yeah, all options are open. That he possibly did something to her? That was, that was on the table, too, in the beginning. In the beginning. How do you, 
how do you walk the line between balancing the possibility that this is the family of a possible 9-11 victim with also your responsibility as a detective to look at people around her and close to her and consider them, but you know, responsibly consider them as potential suspects? How do you how did you walk that line? Well, just deal with them and, like I'm dealing with you now. Just feel them out and you can just learn somebody's character and you know how they act and all the time. I mean, me and Ron met about 30 times. So we were always meeting. He's always coming over to the precinct, and so he's got to, you know, I just didn't see it, him doing it, that's all. Him doing anything bad to her, that's all. He and seemed, I mean, he seemed distraught, and he seemed like he really fought hard to... Well, he felt more distraught and hard because of the fight they had. And I think deep, deep down, he he felt he was part of 9-11, but he, had, he was just in denial, and he was just wanted to keep all options open because he was guilty about having a fight with her. Like the last time he saw her, they had a fight, you know. What, when you say fight, what do you, what do you mean? I've read that they fought outside of the court. Are you talking about something at the apartment or? Outside the court and, you know, I guess that, I don't know what they, I, I'm not sure what they did after the court if they went back to their apartment. I can't remember. He, he said they, they said, that he said they went back to the apartment. And but he, he was just away. saying that they were, he just remembers her. I remember him saying that he just remembers her as, you know, they were fighting the last time he saw her. Um, what about the other family members? I mean, obviously, uh, the interview with her younger brother, John, is something that is a point of contention. Um, what can you tell me about interviewing him? Like I said, I don't want to say nothing bad about, but, you know, people, they think I made, you know, why would I make some story like that up? But I'm talking to him and he's telling me, you know, after we talk for like an hour, his own, yeah, well, there was an incident that this happened. That, again, John allegedly walked in on Sneha having sex with his girlfriend. And then I'm like, oh, okay, well, all right. You know, nothing happened. It's no breaking the law. That's, that's how that happened. But that's what he, and, uh, he was concerned about. And also, huh? Stark asked me to go off the record, which we did, briefly. Later in court, the family said, and the younger brother, John, said that you made that up, that it's not true. What did you think when you heard that? Because somebody, well, somebody's telling the truth. Who's telling the truth? The first time I heard that, well, read it, was in the newspaper article. I tried calling the news, they wouldn't talk to me. So I'm saying it's a lie, you know, you gotta, you know, this is what he told me. And they're saying that I made it up? I mean, that's, why would I make that up? Why? I mean, think about it, you know? It's not affecting the case, it's not gonna, why would I just come out of that and make something like that up? Why do you think... Was he lying? Yes, he's lying that he didn't tell If he's saying he didn't tell me that, then he's lying. Yes. Well, he went even further... Because um, he was... It was probably Ron. Probably yelled at him. And, uh, you know... And made him say that he didn't say it. Just sounds bad. The family, to the whole family, to the situation. Well, it went even further, um, you know, years later, and I think it was part of the, the court proceeding, uh, that... John Sneha's brother denied even ever talking to you. <laughs> okay. Well, I probably have a paperwork saying, you know, when I, like I said, anytime I talk to somebody, I do the DD-5, and that's on record that I talk to him. Why, why do you think he would deny even talking to you or change his story? I don't know. Maybe the family got to him or Ron saying, you know, you can't say bad stuff about Sneha like this and, you know, say you didn't say it, you know. Did you feel you were getting straight answers when you interviewed the family? Uh, yes. Yes, like I said, they're all in denial. 
So I can't say anything to me straight answers because of, you know, because of the denial they were in that she was not with us anymore. Um, but no, yeah, yeah, they were. The family was, you know, I talked to the parents short, on the phone only. And um, they were just very distraught. And I just told them what I was doing. They were asking me questions. And then I didn't really get into anything else except for that. What are the questions they asked? Uh, did you review Sneha's final emails, um, any records of final calls? We talked about that. Uh, instant messages. Did you have a chance yes, to review it? I can't. All I remember is the one to the mother saying she's going shopping the next early morning at the trade center. Did you actually, did you hear that from the mother? Or did you actually get a copy of her communication? I had the copy of communication. So you read it, read it over. Yeah, yeah. Um, other than the mother, do you remember if there was anybody who she spoke to the afternoon of the 10th? All I remember is arguing with Ron and talking to her mother. That was, that was the only two weeks. Here we have yet another discrepancy. No one disputes that Sneha spoke with her mom, Ansu, right before she disappeared. But apparently, she also spoke with one or both of her brothers, and I don't know what she said. According to an archived copy of a website created by Sneha's older brother, Ashwin, Sneha communicated with Ashwin via instant messenger at 2.30 p.m. on September 10th. But according to a different source, a Newsday article written by Hugo Kugia, Sneha sent emails to her mother and younger brother, John, at 2.30 and 3 p.m. on 9.10. Hugo interviewed John for this story, which Newsday published only two weeks after 9-11. So, presumably, it was John himself who said that Sneha emailed him right before she disappeared. One brother says Sneha communicated with him via instant messenger. One said she emailed him. Neither mentions the other brother. Neither reveals what Sneha actually said. Have you ever, have you been interviewed in the last 10 or 15 years at all about 9-11 or this case? Uh, no. When's the last time you're, have you ever been interviewed about this case? Um, no, I turned it down by, they wanted to interview my last year on a job and I was advised not to talk, you know, not, not to do it. So this is the first interview you've given yeah. on this case? Yeah. Um, do you still have any case records or case files or anything? Did you I don't, somewhere, I don't know. So do typically those two boxes that you collected, would they be thrown in a warehouse or, or an yes. art? It would take a while to find them. I have to, have to find out who would be in charge of that. I don't even know. Like I said, I've been out 16 years now. So everything's different now. Police department's totally different. Stark left the NYPD in 2005. Hmm. Is there anything I'm missing? I've gone over my major um, points, but I, I anything that you want to say, anything that... No, just that I was into this case at the time a lot. You know, I mean, when I was off duty. Because I live in the neighborhood, I walk down Union Square, and I see a, you know, I actually went so far as to follow a, a, a lady and stop her, and she thought I was nuts. She was in, you know, like she just came out of the hospital in scrubs, and she looked just like Sneha. <laughs> you know, looked like her, but it wasn't her one size. ID card in the face was thin. Just the same size, hair. She was Indian. But, you know, that's how I was into this case. Not too many cases I'm into when I'm off duty, when I was working. When, when was that? Was that shortly after? That had to be a couple of weeks. After, you know, when Ron put all the flies out, had them all over the place. Um, as an investigator, when you're dealing with families that are suffering and, and trying to figure out uh, what happened to their loved one, uh, to a missing loved one, how do you balance a sense of 
compassion and doing what the family wants with drawing a line and saying, I've done all I can do. How do you, how do you find that line? And then how do you convey that to the families? Well, it gives compassion as much as you can, you know, typing a personality, what you like. And then they know you have to do your job and they want you to do your job. So you have to, you know, be compassionate, be nice, which I always was. Um, Ron got nasty to me, but I kept my, I just, you know, I never got nasty to him because I know what he was going through. Uh, at the same time, the same time this was going on, you mentioned dealing with people with the compassion. One of our jobs as detective was to go to uh, an armory and it was an interview area. I don't know if you know about that. The Lexington armory? Yeah, well, yeah. you know about it. Mm -hmm. You know, and there were like hundreds of people outside online. We go there and I was interviewing families and these families were like, I don't understand. Like, I was talking to my son and all of a sudden I'm gonna talk to him and you know, I just need to check the hospitals and I go, what floor is he on? And it said something like the 96th floor, which is above where the plane hit. And I, I work for uh, Cantor Fitzgerald. So I'm like, so I left him talk and I'm like, sorry, are you aware of what could have happened? And he, he just put his head down and I go, he's on the upper floors above the plane. And if no one's, you know, and they still were, you know, in denial, but you know, they kind of was setting in. But we had to interview family, each families because they were they wanted to know what happened to their loved one, especially when they were talking to them. You know, at the same time on the phone, and it just went dead. What was what was it like just for you as a New Yorker in the immediate days and weeks after? I mean, it, do you do you have clear memories of it, or is it just kind of a blur because it was it's such? A, right now, it's a, it's a talking about it brings back memories, but yeah, it's got the blur in general. Um, yeah, you know, the whole thing, just the, the, like I said, the day after the, the 12th, I went down there. Um, you know, I, I was on the uh, pile voluntarily. And then I'm pretty sure it was the third afternoon or the morning of the 13th that the wind changed and all of a sudden the smell of 9-11 was coming into the window of my apartment. And my wife was going, what the heck is that? Uh, what is that smell? And, uh, you know, it just reminded me of burning flesh. That's what it smells like. You know, like I said, like disintegrated, like this is that powder that was coming all over the, that was a lot of those human remains that was disintegrated from the heat of that, you know, the, the fire from the jet fuel. Stark still suffers lingering health effects from the time he spent volunteering at Ground Zero when he wasn't investigating this case. One of the things that I thought was interesting is in court, you said that you believe this case is closed and the leads are exhausted, but you did not use the word solved. You specifically avoided using the word solved. Can you explain? Well, technically not solved until DNA pop came up from 9-11. So you can't say 100%, you know, until a DNA pop shows from uh, the remains. You mentioned a few weeks after 9-11, seeing someone who looked like her. It was in Union Square Park. Do um, you... Do you still feel like you're sometimes, even though you believe she died in the towers, that you kind of keep an eye out to see if you saw her? Back of my brain? Yeah. 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 I mean, I always say if I see any kind of medical, but my, my, my brother-in-law is a doctor. He's in the, he's from Goa. So um, even when I see anybody in, yeah, I do think about it. When I, if I see I'm in the hospital or I see a, a, a doctor or, you know, that's dressed, you know, it's Indian has, Petite, and it, uh, she pops to my mind. Yeah. How's the family doing? You keep in contact with them? Um, I've talked loosely with them, but they yeah. they just don't want to they talk. They still to live the in up up New York. Um, so the father died. Oh. Uh, 
I believe a year or two ago. Um, so he's he's gone. Uh, the the mom still lives upstate. Uh, Ron lives in California. I remember um, him. Yeah, I remember him. And then uh, the brothers, um, one is in the city, and then I I'm not sure the other one. I think is in Florida. So, but they're they're all still around. I mean, Ron's and I've I, the mother, mom, Antu, and uh, Ron have just they politely told me that they they just don't want to talk to anyone. Um, John, the younger brother is on the fence about talking. So yeah. it's it's kind of, for me, it's kind of hard because I want to be fair and, you know, there's there's what you have from an investigation and court records and I, I want to tell the story of who she was as a person because she had 31 years on the planet. She was, you know, she's a human being beyond How long just, she graduated for? She was only about five years, six years? She graduated in 99, I think. Oh, no, oh, a couple of years. From oh. medical school? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I 99. think it was 99, uh, I'm pretty sure, in okay. Chicago. Um yeah, I mean, she had only been married a year and a half, not that long. Um, so, you know, I... I, I then you see the, 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 the photos of that wedding? Yeah. <laughs> some wedding, huh? Right, yeah. Holy I've seen I've seen some video from it, too. Yeah. Hey, I, I appreciate it. Um, I don't know what I've missed. I always pour over my notes 50,000 yeah. times. But, um, you know, any... any Final words. It, Summary, it, I, I I think she was a good person, a little confused. I'm not sure how good of a doc she was. She's brand new, so how good, I mean, you know. Um, but I do feel, you know, my gut, 99.9% that she was part of 9-11. That's where she, pe- she passed away. And I just feel bad for the family. And, and Ron, I hope he's doing okay in California. So. Great. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Okay, you're welcome. You're good. Okay. Next time on Missing on 9-11. Yeah, the facts showed that everybody would be entitled to a death certificate that they died at the Trade Center, except for two people. And one of the two was Snia and Philip. Homework this week. One, do you work for the NYPD and have access to the Sneha Philip case files? Do you know if they even still exist? Two, Do you know Jimmy Nelson, the doorman who worked the 11 to 7 shift at 225 Rector Place on 9-10 and 9-11? Three, did you work at St. Vincent's Medical Center on Staten Island in 2001? If so, you can reach us by phone at 1-833-NEW-TIPS. That's 1-833-639-8477. Again, 1-833-639-8477. 8477. Or you can reach us via email at tips at iheartmedia.com. That's tips, T-I-P-S, at iheartmedia.com. Ben Bowen is our executive producer. Paul Deccan is our supervising producer. Chris Brown is our assistant producer. Seth Nicholas Johnson is our producer. Sam Teagarden is our research assistant. And I'm your host and executive producer, John Walzak. Cover art by Pam Peacock. Special thanks to Tamika Campbell at iHeart and to Christoph Zapri in New Orleans. Also, thank you to Detective Richard Stark and Aesop Rock. Original theme music by Aesop Rock. Check out Aesop's website at aesoprock.com. You can find me on Twitter at at John Walzak, J-O-N-W-A-L-C-Z-A-K. If you like this show, check out our first season, Missing in Alaska, about the 1972 disappearance of two congressmen. Missing on 9-11 is a co-production of iHeartRadio and Greenfort Media.
Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.